Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. So good to see you. Tom, Oaken, Virginia, Tar, everyone. Brandon, good to see you. So nice to see you all. I've missed you. We've, a lot has happened. We've been through a lot. Two weeks before Pesach. Tehila and I took the family to South Africa. We were invited by the Jewish community in Johannesburg to host a Shabbat before Passover, then in Cape Town before Passover. And in between, we had events with fellowship members from our from our fellowship. Just such a special time. What an adventure. What a country. What a place. And as we're away, we hear demonstrations are raging across Israel. Banks are shutting down. The airport is shutting down. Hundreds of thousands of people are flooding the streets in Israel. What's how our country is falling apart? It's like the politics polarizing. We've never seen anything like this. And then Passover comes, Passover goes in the middle of Passover, two horrific terror attacks, two funerals. And then last night, I attended the funeral of Michael Abramowitz of blessed memory, Ari's father. And so it's just been a lot. And so um, this fellowship today, the Torah we learn, the prayers that we pray, the mitzvot that we do together, may they be for the elevation of the soul of Mordechai Herschel ben Yechiel Zalman, Michael Abramowitz of blessed memory. May his neshama have an aliyah. Um, it's a lot. The funeral was last night. And today, Ari is sitting Shiva. All of the messages that you all have been writing in the chats, I'm going to send that over to Ari after the fellowship. He's not with us live today, but Tehila is with us live today. So that's a unique opportunity that we usually don't get. And, um, you know, I know that the Land of Israel Network and the Land of Israel Fellowship, Ari and I and Tehila, you know, we've become a voice of Israel. And in many ways, more than information, I feel like we share the heart of Israel. We just share our souls. The real Israel, what's behind the news. And sometimes, you know, hearts are broken. And in the book of Psalms in chapter 34, verse 19, I just love this verse. It says, Hashem is close to the brokenhearted and he will save their broken spirits. And, you know, I have this problem. I'm a sensitive guy. I'm not as sensitive as Ari, but I'm pretty sensitive. You know, I feel the pain of others really strong. I, sometimes it'll just knock me out. I'll get so overwhelmed. I need to lie down and I can't get out of bed. And so a lot of times I just shut myself out. I just block it away, protect myself from not feeling. But Hashem is close to the brokenhearted. And, you know, to the people who haven't covered up their hearts and sealed themselves off and protected themselves, it's... Um, when you break, your heart is broken. It's, it's open. It's open for, for God to come in. And this last week, everything hit so close to home. It, even if I wanted to cover my heart, it couldn't be covered. And so with a broken heart, and hopefully with Hashem close to all of us now, I want to start the fellowship with a prayer. Hashem, master of the world, we are broken hearted for Israel. We feel the pain of the families who have been devastated by the terror attacks, the loss of these beautiful lives, the gifts that have been taken away from us, taken away from their families, the hole they've left in our hearts. Hashem, please fill the vacuum, bring comfort to their families and to all of Israel. Your fellowship has gathered here like loyal soldiers of the King. 
to dedicate this time to you as we always do. Help us in these times. Give us the light to fight the darkness. Give us the love to overcome the hate. Bless this fellowship. Bless everyone here today. Bless everyone and anyone that will be tuning in later. Bless them. Bless their families. May our broken hearts make an opening for you. And may you enter in and guide us in our lives. May you guide us all the way to a new Jerusalem, to a new world where peace and love and truth reign. Amen. And so I've been removed uh, in Africa. Sometimes there's no reception, hours of the day with no electricity. It was just impossible. And I really, truly missed our gatherings. I missed being with you. I missed seeing all your faces. And, you know, this just leaving Passover, the father of all biblical holidays. I mean, every holiday really revolves around Passover. Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. We all, just every holiday is really in some ways a commemoration of the exodus of Egypt and dealing with life and death so powerfully over the holiday. I mean, you just couldn't help but think about the bigger things in life. And now for the first time in 30 years, Passover, Easter, and Ramadan all fell out exactly on the same time. Now, I'm not big on religions in general, but Islam, Christianity, and Judaism come from the same source, from the same father, Abraham. Abraham was called Av Lehamon Goim. That was his promise. He was going to be the father of many nations, and lo and behold, he is the father of every Christian, of every Jew, of every Muslim, and Abraham didn't have a religion. That was his legacy. He says, you don't need man-made statues. You don't need religions of that time to live in a relationship with God. And I think Judaism, Christianity, and Islam at the core are trying to aim in that direction, even though so many religionists maybe miss the mark. And I saw this time as a gut check. You know, where are the spiritual children of Abraham, the believers in the God of Abraham? Well, where are we holding right now? Believers in good and evil, right and wrong, believers in love and compassion. And it's a hard time for Abraham's children right now. I mean, Israel was chosen and separated from all other nations. And it was separated and chosen for a purpose. And maybe it's why many nations hate us, but we were chosen to be a witness of God in the world, to be a light to the nations, to expose that there is light and there is darkness in the world. There is good and there is evil. And we can expose the truth voluntarily by living out the Torah, by teaching the Torah to the world, or we can expose the truth of evil because when evil arises in the world, it attacks the Jew first. And the Jewish people expose the evil for what it is. Um, chosen to be a testimony of the living God of Israel. You know, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day is right around the corner. And when you learn in detail what the German Nazis did to the Jews, Tehillah is right now reading a book about a orphanage a Jewish doctor who took care of these orphans and he was given free right to escape. And he decided to stay with his children all the way to the gas chambers. And it's just impossible to walk away from really learning about the Holocaust in depth and not recognizing true evil in the world. I mean, they didn't just kill the Jews. They tortured us in the most sadistic ways. They made evil into an art to really expose evil for what it is. And look at what has happened this last month, three pairs, three siblings, brothers, another brothers and sisters were taken from us. I mean, these beautiful pictures, their faces, it's just 
they're so amazing. They're so holy. They're so pure. And there was really nothing that we could do. We're just living in Israel and news comes and two brothers are taken from us. Just pure goodness. There's, there's no blemish. You look at their eyes. They're just goodness on top of goodness. These were the last ones. You know, this family, the D family, they live two houses right next to my brother in Efrat, who lives 10 minutes away from the farm. And all of this was reaching this climax, these siblings being taken away from us in the Torah portion where two siblings are taken away from us. First, we have Maya and Rina that were taken from us. And then we read the Torah portion of Nadav and Aviyu, where these two brothers are taken from Israel at the center stage for all of Israel to see. And you're like, you know, whoa, what is going on? Nothing here is an accident. And Abraham, who taught the world chesed, unconditional love and kindness. And here we're like brought face to face with just absolute evil. You know, over Passover, for those that don't know, a terrorist walked over to a mother and her two daughters in a car that he purposely crashed into with a machine gun and 20 bullets, stood over them at point blank, murdered them as they were defenseless in their car. Could there be a clearer picture of good and evil? And there's a global pandemic, a total loss of morals in the world today. It's not limited to just Islamic jihad terrorists. It's not. Lord John Taylor, a member of parliament in Ireland for almost 20 years, said this after the murder in the D family. It is very sad news that the mother of the two Jewish girls who were killed last week also died. But all three were settlers living in locations in Palestine, which are illegal. These illegal settlements must end and help to bring peace between Palestine and Israel. How sick is that? Imagine what he's saying. Imagine there's an American family on vacation in Colorado. And you believe that the rights to the land in America truly belong to the Native American Indians. An Indian walks over to this beautiful family on a family vacation who has done nothing wrong other than living in America. A random murderer walks over and executes their mother and their two daughters at point blank. What disgusting, morally bankrupt, vile imbecile would say, yeah, Three defenseless people were murdered, but all three were Americans living in a land that I think really belongs to the Indians. What political dispute would ever justify murdering a mother and her two daughters? Blaming the victims for their own murder? That a mother and her daughters, they lived in Efrat in Judea. So your political opinion is that not only do Jews have no right to live in Judea, but if a terrorist murder them, it's their fault for being Jews who live in Judea. Lord John Taylor, you are a disgrace to humanity. I think, Tabitha, I want to cut that. That I want to send that to him. I'm going to make that. I want to him to watch that and listen to that. That's what I want to do. It's like, what do we do? These are not like vile terrorists. This is all parliament member. What morally bankrupt? There's just no good. There's no evil. It's insanity. Oy. And then it's not just in Ireland. The Jew Bernie Sanders, a senator in the United States, alongside the Democratic Party, call on Biden. Look at the headlines here. I think we can put that up on the screen. To ensure aid to Israel isn't used in support of human rights violations, calling on the administration to undertake a foundational shift 
in its approach to the Israeli-Palestinian-Arab conflict. So after these murders that have happened, now the Democrats, who are the ones who are taking U.S. tax dollars, wiring millions to the Palestinian Authority, who are literally paying the families of the terrorists who are killing the Jews, they're saying, no, watch your money that you're giving to Israel, that it's not violation of human rights, where they are literally paying people violation of human rights. They are paying the Palestinian Authority to kill Jews. Look at the graph here of the American support for Israel and the death of Jews in Israel. Do you see where it goes to almost nothing? That's when Donald Trump cut the funding to the PLO and the deaths in Israel just went almost to nothing. The Democrats came into power and look at how it spikes up there, goes up and up and up because the Democrats, human rights violations, they've turned killing Jews into a good business. You get 12,000 shekels a month to your family if you successfully kill a Jew in Israel. And imagine what Bernie Sanders is saying. Watch out, America. We have to fundamentally shift the way we're dealing with Israel. We need to fund the people that are killing the Jews and be wary about funding the only democracy in the Middle East where Jews, Christians, and Muslims under Jewish rule can practice freely their religion and live as equal citizens. What are we going to do in a world that is so dark? Look at this picture that was taken today um, by, this is the Hezbollah, Iran-backed terrorist organization in Lebanon, right north of Israel. They're, of course, connected to the Hamas. Look at that picture. They know exactly what they're doing. They're not hiding it. They know what they stand for. Money to pay the terrorists to kill Jews. The Democrats are all for that. But the Democrats want a foundational shift in America's approach to Israel. It's as if evil has taken on a new form in this generation. And it's not Nazis today. Well, not exactly. Maybe they have the same salute. But look at what's happening now. Countries, what are you going to do? Back in that time, a lot of countries joined the side of evil in the last generation. Many nations, they didn't join, but they pretty quickly raised the white flag. It took a lot for the Allied forces to eventually join together and fight against the Nazis. And I don't think a lot has changed. There's a lot of darkness in the world, and there are cowards today that will side with the devil if they think the devil is going to win. And most people will probably choose not to decide at all and just follow whatever the crowds are doing. And so it's just overwhelming. Like, what are we called to do? How do we take the pain and turn it into light? You know, it's like the more light we bring, the more darkness we banish. We're called to be a light to the nations. So what are we called to do in these dark times? And so in the darkest of times, Hashem sends us spice carts, always. His signature that on all things to remind us, don't worry, there is a master plan that's unfolding. And I want to invite Tehillah because she was the first one that pointed this out to me, teaching me over Shabbat, such an incredible um, kind of confluence of events and Torah ideas that are all sort of pointing directly to the experience that we're all going through um, just this last week. So I hope that she was able to make it onto the fellowship and I would just pass it off to her if she's here with us. And hopefully she's so sharp, hopefully it'll be like the first rays of light to pierce through this darkness. Tahila, are you with us? Hi, everybody. Yay! Hey guys. <laughs> this is exciting. I hope everyone hears me all right. I'm being very adventurous and trying to get on Wi-Fi at the farm. 
not an easy Pesach, obviously. It's not an easy Passover. Sunday of last week was the funeral of Maya and Rina D. And just two, two days later on Tuesday was the funeral of their mother, Lucy, Leah. Uh, these horrible you know, tragedies just came as the thought shocking, like, like you said, Jeremy, third set of siblings killed after the Yaniv brothers and the Peli brothers. And you know, shortly after that horrible tragedy, right on the last day, right before the last day of Passover, two siblings from Tiberia were killed in a flash flood as well. I, I've asked so many people and no one I know can even remember any time in the last decades in Israel's history, a time like this where there were so many multiple family members, specifically siblings, being killed consecutively like this. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's like Hashem is, is saying something to him. And, you know, on this week of Pesach, when we're, you know, burying another set of siblings killed for no reason other than being Jewish, what was so insane was that I saw how, as you said, Jeremy, the Torah portion was the Torah portion of Shemini, which is essentially the old Torah portion that speaks of a family losing two sons, two brothers, our own sons, Nadav and Abiyu. And, you know, and, and the, the, the similarities go even deeper because just like Israel now losing beloved siblings on what's meant to be our happiest time, the holiday of our freedom, Passover, Aaron lost his two sons and what was meant to be the happiest day for his desert, the tabernacle, the glory of Hashem was going to appear to the nation. And, you know, in fact, not a lot of people notice this, um, the ceremony that we read about in this past Torah portion of the of the sanctification of the tabernacle actually happened in the month of Nisan that we're in right now. The Ibn Ezra says that Nadav and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, died on the eighth day of Nisan. And what that actually means is that the Shiva, the day, the seven days of mourning, actually ran into Passover. And so, you know, so it's like we're 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 seeing like that this week's parsha. It doesn't just echo what happened, but it also takes place in the same season that we're in. I wanted to look to the Parsha to try to illuminate the way for us a little bit here. And there are so many, you know, there, there, you know, there are 54 portions in the Torah. The odds of burying two sets of siblings in Israel on the same week that this Torah portion comes out are, are so small, it just can't be a coincidence. And then I thought to myself, well, where should I look? Where should I look? Well, what's even... What, you know, another kind of thing that, that, that took place was that on the day of the funeral of Rina and Maya, it was also the 30th anniversary of the passing of Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik Zatzal. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik was the great scholar and leader of American modern orthodoxy in the 20th century. He was known to American Jews because of his greatness and his stature simply as the rabbi. Go to an American uh, Orthodox Jew and you say, the Rav says, the Rabbi says, they'll know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about Rav Soloveitchik because he's a visionary scholar, philosopher. Uh, he led the way for religious Zionism and modern life as a Jew in the world after the Holocaust. He led the way for women getting Torah education uh, and so many more things. So it, because of his, his, the anniversary of his passing came out on the same day as the funeral, I wanted to look to his writings and see if he had something um, if you had something on this week's portion that could that could help us, and sometimes when you don't know what to say, um, it's better to just be silent and kind of let let the great sages speak for us. So I want to let the Rav, uh, the Rav Rav Soloveitchik, speak instead of us, instead of me. Excuse me. Um, so, see, I'm trying to share a screen here. One second.
Ah, it's not working. I don't know why it's not working, so I'm just going to have to read it to you guys. And then I'll try to send it out later. What Rav Soloveitchik, it's what's so remarkable is that Rav Soloveitchik actually speaks about this in commenting on this week's Torah portion. Rav Soloveitchik says that Aaron, the high priest, was met with disaster. On the most joyous day of his life, when the tabernacle was dedicated, he was inaugurated to his office and two of his sons died. So Rav Soloveitchik says that death is this, you know, like is, is the hardest thing to face and the, even harder to lose a child and even harder to lose two children. And <laughs> Rav says, even harder to lose two children in, in a situation they can't possibly understand in a situation where they were seemingly trying to come close to Hashem. And, you know, they were seemingly righteous people. And this is so difficult to understand. And what happens afterwards is so, it's so staggering when you read the Torah portion of this past week, because you would think that in all of this, there'd be like a moment, you know, just give, give Aaron a moment. But Portion goes on to say that Moses said to Aaron, you mustn't mourn. They were not allowed to shed a tear, it says, because, like, because they were more than just individual people. Rev Soloveitchik says the priests constituted a community of the anointed who were consecrated exclusively to the service of Hashem. So that right to you know, more than the death of a child was not given to Aaron and his son because their commitment to Hashem was ultimate and all-inclusive. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that teach us? It says, you know, it, it, the Rav Soloveitchik asks, what does that mean, like, psychologically? He says that Hashem wanted Aaron to disown the strongest emotion in man, the love for a child. And this is, listen to Rav Soloveitchik's words. It's just mind-blowing. He says, is that possible? As far as modern man is concerned, I would not dare answer. That's what he says. He goes, I don't know if any modern person can live up to the challenge that Hashem put to Aaron. With respect to biblical man, he says, we read that Aaron indeed acted for the divine instruction. It says in the verse, Moshe. they did it according to Moshe said. Aaron was able to set aside his individual feelings and just be completely dedicated to Hashem. And Rav Soloveitchik says, we learn from that, that as he said, what he, what he calls the covenantal community, the community that lives in covenant with Hashem, he says, usually we look at halakha as something soft and loving, and that's what it usually is. Usually, I and mean, we talk about this a lot here on the fellowship, how the Jewish law works so much in accordance with our nature, and Hashem deals with us so kindly. But sometimes he said, the halakha makes demands upon us, like the demand that Hashem makes upon Aaron to set aside his personal feelings and continue the ceremony in, in, for, for all of the nation, sometimes the halakha, the Jewish law, the Torah law makes demands upon us that, that, that seem just so difficult, but they take us to the, you know, to the higher level that we need to get to. And then here's where I, this is where I, you know, I just couldn't, help but make the connection. He says, let me bring you an example of how this could happen to a person in modern life, how there could be an Aaron situation like what we had in our Torah portion in our everyday life. He says, let me bring you an example. And I really, I couldn't, I got chills down my spine when I saw the one example that he chose to bring because it's like as if he was speaking to us right at this moment. He says, 
let me give you an example. We know that the law, the law is that a festival suspends the mourning when one of your relatives passes away. Meaning like if, it, if one of your relatives passes on one of the three festivals on, you know, Sukkot or on Passover or on Shavuot, then it suspends the mourning process. And he says, you know, mourning is where you face the depth of your sorrow. And the festivals are where Hashem commands us, you must be joyous on the festival. It's like, what two greater contrasts could there be? And he says, he says, you have to listen to these words. So let us visualize the following concrete situations. He wants to bring us a, an actual example of how you can be in an Aaron situation, a situation like Aaron faced our fortune. He says, let us visualize the following situation. He says, a mourner who has buried a loved wife or mother returns home from the graveyard where he left a part of himself. He is in a mood to question the validity of our very universe. The house is empty, dreary. Every piece of furniture reminds him of the beloved person he buried. Every corner is full of memories. But the halakha, the Jewish law, addresses itself to the lonely mourner, whispered to him, rise from your mourning. Cast the ashes from your head. Change your clothes. Light the candles. Recite over the cup of wine. The Kiddush, praising Hashem for giving us festivals of gladness and a sacred season of joy. As if nothing had transpired, as if your beloved person over whom you are grieving were still with you. He says, even though the halakha, the Jewish law, can sometimes be like tender and understanding, sometimes it is demanding of obedience. And he says, the halakha, the Jewish law, suggests to man broken in body and spirit, carrying the burden of an absurd existence that he changes mood, cast off his grief, and choose joy. And then he says, I want to repeat the question. Is such a metamorphosis of an individual possible? The question Rav Salonetik is trying to figure out is, can, is this something that only Aaron, only biblical man can do? Or is it something that people like us can do? He says, can somebody make that leap from hopelessness to joyous trust? Can somebody replace the experience of monstrosity with the highest meaningfulness? And he says, I have no right to judge. I can't judge. And then he says, he kind of finishes cryptically, he says, but I know of people who have attempted to perform this greatest of miracles. And he says, if somebody is able to do this, this is the greatest of miracles of us. And, you know, when I read that, I got such, I got such chills because, you know, the Torah is being brutally honest with us. He's saying the Torah is being brutally honest with us. The journey of life will break us. And everyone is at the level that they're at, and they'll be tested at the level they're at. But from that, you can rise up and achieve this metamorphosis. And that would be the greatest miracle. But what struck me most is that he says, you know, this is something that I know biblical man could do, but he kind of leaves it as an open question. So I have to share with you a message that we got on WhatsApp from a friend of Jeremy's who was in the synagogue with Rabbi Leo D, with the father who lost his wife and his two daughters. It was the last night of Passover. The funeral was at two o'clock. So imagine we're talking about a matter of just a few hours after his beloved wife's funeral, just three days after his daughter's funeral. And because of the holiday, he wasn't allowed to mourn. Rav Soloveitchik envisioned, God forbid, a situation where somebody buried their wife on Passover. He envisioned a situation where Aaron buried two children. He didn't dare to imagine a person facing those two things at the same time. And so this, this gentleman wrote to us, 
He said, I prayed next to the D family on the holiday. After such difficult days for our community, as the holiday began, the D family came into the synagogue upright and head of, heads held high. In the morning, I came a few minutes before the prayer service. The D family was already there. Rabbi Leo sees me and comes to me to offer a warm, loving hug and bless me with a happy holiday. But still in the synagogue, everyone can feel the tension between sorrow and joy. The prayer leaders struggled to find the proper balance. It was so hard. And then comes the festive Hallel prayer. Those are the psalms that we joyously sing on every festival. The first psalm, no one sings it. And then I thought maybe the prayer leader feels it inappropriate to start singing. Maybe he'll sing the next psalm. The next psalm comes and speaks of Israel leaving Egypt. The prayer leader doesn't sing. And everyone's hearts begin to sink and feel the mourning. And I begin to understand that this last day of the holiday, we're not going to be singing the prayers. We're going to just be saying them quietly to ourselves in sorrow and in pain and in tears. But then at that moment, he writes, Rabbi Leo gets up from his place, goes over to the prayer leader. Rabbi Leo gently puts his hand on him, hugs him, and whispers something in his ear. And then the prayer leader looks at the rabbi, looks at Rabbi Leo, and immediately starts singing in a tune that uplifted the spirit of every person to the highest heights. And from there on, we sang the entire rest of the prayer. We sang together every word. What did, the rabbi, what did Rabbi Leo say? I went to the prayer leader after the service and I asked if he would share with me what Rabbi Leo had whispered in his ear. He said, he whispered in my ear, please make it joyous. And so it was, he writes, joyful and a little sad, but mainly, mainly comforting. And he finishes this letter that he wrote saying, Am Yisrael Hai, the nation of Israel lives. So, you know, I don't have words of wisdom to make it make sense. Um, you know, make of that letter what you will. And I don't know why things are so, but I can only marvel and invite all of us to marvel at the miracle that is the nation of Israel, that through the worst suffering are birthed forth people of such character that they literally rise. They literally are able to rise to the level of our biblical heroes, to the nobility of our biblical heroes that our great sages could only wonder and envision the possibility of their existence. So I don't know, you know, I don't know how to comfort us and how to comfort anyone, but, but you know, the, 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 all I can do is be grateful that there are people like Rabbi Leo and like the other heroes of Israel that stand with their heads high and carry for all of us the burden of the responsibility and the difficulty of being uh, of being a Torah believer in the world that we live in that has so much evil, as you said, Jeremy, but they just shine so much brighter than any of that. So may the merit of the righteous people, the righteous people of the Bible and the righteous people of biblical proportions that are being born today, light the path for all of us for our final redemption and May Hashem wipe the tears from every face. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tehila. That was absolutely beautiful. It's just mind-blowing that the greatest or one of the greatest diaspora rabbis of the last generation, exactly 30 years to the day, was pondering. Could it be that Jews would be able to live up to the biblical heroism of Aaron and then to witness it with our own eyes? of a Jew living in Judea, living out what faith is. It's just unbelievable. 
And what I wanted to do with the fellowship, because I know there's just so much going on in the world, but I wanted to let people just meet Rabbi Leo for just a little bit. I mean, last week I went to three funerals and the first one was by far the hardest. It was the funeral of his two daughters. And I just had a little clip from the eulogy, not all of it, just a part of it, just to give us a taste of the heart of Israel and that you'd be able to meet um, Rabbi D and see his family and see the love of Israel that just emanates from everyone in that room and especially from him. So this is, you know, I guess an idea that those who sow with sadness will reap with joy. If you cry with the people of Israel, you will reap with joy and end up singing alongside us as well. And so with our hearts open, here is a short clip from Rabbi D. Rabbonim, ministers, members of Knesset, Mayor Revivi, social worker Anat, family and friends. I know my darling wife Lucy would have asked me to state from the beginning that these words are from the two of us. Tonight, as ever, the sentiments are from her. She is my CEO and I'm just the scribe. Firstly, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your warmth, your kindness, and your love. Never have we seen such an outpouring of love. And thank you to everyone who has helped in every possible way. I've not had to do anything. Everything has been done for us. All of you are holy tzaddikim. You are a miracle. Rabbi Akiva Tatz once taught me a question asked in the Talmud. If Siamese twins, two babies conjoined at the hip or the head or the arm are born, do they inherit as one person or do they inherit as two separate people? And the Talmud answers, you must do the following test. If you hurt one of the bodies and the other side feels the pain, then they are one. Today, the Jewish people have proven that we are one. We are united, amechad. When a simple, quiet family in a frat is devastated. The whole country hurts. And when a family in Tel Aviv is devastated, the whole country hurts. There's no greater proof of our unity. Am Yisrael Chai. And we know this. In fact, we've always known this. We've been marching through the streets of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv with Israeli flags, arguing over whether there should be a vote of 61, 65, 70, an override clause, no override clause in the Bagats, the Supreme Court. Let's be honest. Most of us have no idea what any of this means. But in three weeks' time, 
on Yom HaZikaron, on Yom HaTzmaut. We will once again be marching side by side, all of us carrying our Israeli flags, left wing, next to right wing, religious, next to secular, united against the real threat, the threat of pure evil, the threat of a mad ideological driven terrorist funded by Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, with a Kalashnikov rifle who doesn't care whether you're from a frat or Tel Aviv, London or Italy, who's prepared to destroy your children's lives in an instant. And then we will all march as one. Am Yisrael Chai. Some people have asked me, how can you have such emunah, faith in God's continued goodness? Please, God, it should last longer than just today. And I've told them that I've listened to almost all of Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg's Emunashir Rim available online on yutorah.org. And in them he repeats over and over again that there is one main formula for Emunah. Always focus on what you do have and not on what you do not. And I still have three wonderful children, Karen, Tali, Yehuda, and a wonderful wife, Lucy, Leah Batsipora. May she please God soon come out of her coma. And Maya and Rina, who lie before us, you are now part of us all forever. And if the Jewish people would look at what we have and not at what we do not have, we would realize that we still are a united people. We're united against a common enemy. We are the forces of good fighting the forces of evil. And we will always prevail. I'm Yisrael Chai. Oh, so that was just a part to just give you a touch. But what you didn't hear were the hundreds of little girls, all of Maya and Rena's friends, that were just sobbing and crying, and the families, and the it was just so overwhelming. And you know, we're just here to live in our land, raise families, and it's so connected to what happened then Saturday night. We had to go to the funeral with Ari and his family. And in my life, I don't think I've experienced such a unique expression of fatherly love. Michael Abramowitz was so unique in that because he thought that he was only going to live until he was 20, because as a young boy, he was diagnosed with diabetes. He cherished every day until he was 71. And he never thought he would have kids. So he loved his kids with a fierce passion. And he loved his grandkids. And he was such a special man. And watching Ari um, eulogize his father, for me, it was 
literally an out-of-body experience. And I just don't think that Michael could have been any prouder. And it's just been a rocky time, tumultuous time, ups and downs and heartbreak. And I, the question that I'm like left with is, well, how do we move forward in these hard times? Where do we find the strength? Where do we find the courage to keep going as Israel, as people? And I just try to turn to the Torah. And this was the message that I had in Africa. And I didn't realize that it would be a message for me when I got back. But, you know, we're all in Egypt now. Even those of us that live in Israel, we're in Egypt now. And look at what happens when Israel leaves Egypt. There's a message for us to help us leave our own Egypts. And so in Parashat B'Shalach, in Exodus chapter 13, it says like this, And it came to pass when Peril had let the people go, and God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely remember you, and you shall carry up my bones away with you. It's like, what's going on there? I mean, Moses was such a busy person, leading the greatest grassroots revolution liberating a nation under the mightiest empire, a nation of slaves. There was no communication, no WhatsApp groups, no emails, no telephones. Surely he could have delegated that task. Moses himself goes down to pick up the bones of Joseph. Why does he do that? I mean, couldn't he have just said, Aaron, listen, I'm pretty busy right now. Do me a favor. Go get Joseph's bones. We got to get out of here. But no, he himself is embodying an idea to teach us generations later what does it mean to leave Egypt? You can't leave Egypt without the bones of Joseph. Modern spirituality claims something that's really only a half-truth. It says you can find strength and serenity in the moment. Be mindful, be present, be in the power of now. And there's a lot of truth to that. If you spend your time regretting the past or fearing the future, then you're never really just present where you are. You can't ever really experience the joyous moments of life that happen to us all the time if we're not really in the moment. But that's not enough. There's no oomph there. There's no power there. If you want liberation from Egypt and you need strength, you need to go all the way back to the beginning. You need to go back to the bones of Joseph to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and remember where we came from. You need to go back to our history and grab onto it and take it with you into the future, only with the perspective of biblical destiny, with a God's eye view through history, can we really see a path forward for Israel. And you see much more than a path. You see the trajectory. There are always ups and downs. But if you look at where the people of Israel have come from and where we are today, I mean, we just celebrated Passover in the mountains of Judea, drinking wine we made from our own vineyards, eating a Passover Seder like kings, members of a royal family in Eretz Israel. When you think about where we were just 150 years ago, what's happening in Israel is a miracle of God, and the trajectory is really clear. Israel is on the rise, and there's nothing that can stop us. We're going to win. And for many, it feels like, oh, but it's such a long road. It's like for an eternal people, we're already seeing the finish line over the horizon. Our strength doesn't come from the moment. It comes from the vast history of where we've come from, how many empires have risen and fall. And here we are singing the praises of God. And so in life, we have to choose a path. And 
you know, for many people, they'll choose not to decide. Just wait on the sidelines and keep your head down. And, but not choosing, that's still a choice. And you can choose to be one with Israel, to cast your lot with Israel, to make aliyah to Israel, to choose to live a life of love and compassion, to choose to live a life of good over evil, never letting the world confuse you that no such thing exists, to understand where we've come from, enslaved in Egypt, enslaved in Auschwitz, and fighting for our freedom one last time in Israel today. Our victory in Israel is a victory for freedom everywhere in the world, a victory for love over hate, for truth over lies, for good over evil. Where else would I choose to stand? And so that's why we stand with Israel. And may Hashem give us the strength to overcome all the obstacles. May Hashem fill our hearts with the vacuum that's been left. And may Hashem give us the strength and courage to march forward in faith, knowing that he has a plan and that all of us have a place within that plan. And so I just want to bless everyone in this fellowship. You are so much more. A fellowship, I feel like, doesn't really do it. It's like an extended family, a spiritual family, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, something that's beyond time and beyond space. It's connected in Africa and connected in Europe and America. And every time I meet a member of the fellowship, I've never met them sometimes. And as soon as I meet, immediately it's a soul connection that can't be explained any other way. And so from this place and from this time and with a broken heart that hopefully Hashem has room to come into from my heart to yours, I bless you from this place. Shalom, my dear friends. We love you. We'll see you soon. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.